Praise God. All right, as you're sitting down today, there's going to be some mature content. And I want to give you a chance. We do have a, a children's ministry. So if you have any little ones, it would be probably a good idea. I'll try and code my words as much as possible. To get into this, because this is a message about Christmas, I want to read one of the most exciting, thrilling passages in all of the Bible. It's like one of those passages, you know, there's just some passages they flow and they preach themselves. Those passages you read and you just get filled with excitement, like you need to take like a quick five-minute praise break, you know, dance around in the Holy Ghost, like in a revival meeting with that offbeat drum. Anybody ever experienced that? A little do Okay, we might have one of those after I'm done reading this today, okay? So... So try to hold back your emotion because this is one of the most emotional, victorious, engaging, intense passages in all the Bible. So again, hold the praise break to the end. Here it goes. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brother. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon, who was from Copper River, Alaska. Um, that's just a little Hebrew. You don't know that unless you, you know, you got to dive in deep like I do. Uh, I'm at levels, you guys, you haven't sniffed them yet, so... Salmon, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. Calm down. Hold your excitement a little longer. Let me get through this here. David was the father of Solomon by Uriah's wife. They don't name her. We're going to come back to this in a minute. Anybody know who she was? Bathsheba. Uh, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. Joram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brother, uh, brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon, okay? I know you want to shout right now. Just hold it back. And here's the final part, and then we'll, we'll party. <laughs> after, uh, after the exile of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. Abiud was the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, who was a hobbit in the Lord of the Rings. I don't know. It just sounds, some of these names are like, I, I see where uh, Lord of the Rings got their, their verbiage here. Um, Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim was the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of uh, Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathen. Mathen, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born the most powerful name in all the universe. You say it with me, Jesus. Amen. Now that's some shout material right there. 
And he is called the Christ in all. Then there were 14 generations. From Abe to Dave, 14 generations. From Dave to the exile in the Babylon, 14. And from the exile to Christ, there were 14. I was obviously joking, right? I could say enough said, I'm done. This thing just preached itself. But most people skip past this. And for good reason. It doesn't have a whole lot of caffeine in it, right? Compared to other scriptures. And this is not the normal go-to pump-up passage that we tend to read until you dig in and you find out why some of the names appear. Now remember when the writers of the Bible penned what they penned, they weren't doing it based on coordinating with other authors. This is the beauty and the supernatural perfection of the scriptures. Because you had people that lived on different continents, that lived in different generations, over a span of many years. And when you compile their writings and we get our canon, which is the 66 books, it, there's this seamless flow. And that's why you say, Scripture interprets Scripture. So the Holy Spirit knew what he was doing when he spoke to, most likely, Matthew Pennis. So Matthew writes, and he's trying to communicate to a Gentile audience something that the Jews would have recognized when they read this, and the Gentiles would recognize it when these names and this plot was explained to them. And so I do want to dive in because it is exciting when we get below the surface. Many of you came today in ugly Christmas sweaters, but today we're going to look at the ugly family tree of Jesus to find out how beautiful it actually is. Because when the Lord, who could have hid some of the ugly in his family tree, when he exposed and allowed to be seen some of the ugly branches, some of the scandals, the fact that there were outsiders included in his line, it puts grace in greater light. And it helps us understand who are longing for belonging and wondering if God would accept someone like me, not just theologically, but when we see what Jesus came from, we get a better picture of the heart of God and how amazing it is that he brings all of us who don't deserve it into his family of God. And so ancestry has become a pretty big topic in this hour of time. Some of you have gone on to Ancestry.com and this is where you can discover what percentage ethnicity you are. You can find out, you know, where you came from actually versus some of the myths that have passed through the family. You think your family owned a castle in Scotland. You found out that wasn't true. <laughs> um, or the Native American thing gets played out. And some of you are, but I don't know if you're trying to get money. I don't know your deal, but you take this and it'll kind of point. I don't know how accurate it is. How many have done like the 23andMe? Okay. In preparing for this, I actually did the 23andMe. And my granddad spent a lot of time actually researching the Chicago Library, but I was shocked to find out what came back in my blood test. And in fact, I called 23andMe and they actually had to confirm that what came back was accurate because it blew my mind. So I want to show you my results. Results for Dave Riesinger. I was, came back. Now this is true. Hold up. You think I'm lying. Do you think I have the technology available to create an image and 
I'm 50% gangster, 50% thug life. And here's what blew my mind. I call them, how can I then be 100% baller? And they said, you have 200% DNA, okay? And I was just tripping. And there's something I didn't put on here. I'm going to say it. I was a little embarrassed, but they said I'm also 2% tenderness, but the gangster in me didn't want to admit that. So it just kind of is what it is. Um, so you can take that down. These are, these are facts. I'm willing to sign this and uh, sell it to any uh, of the highest bidder here. The first people to ever see my actual DNA. All right. Matthew and Luke, they take Jesus through a 23 and me. And Jesus, he has the bloodline through mom and then the, the legal line through dad, although both were bloodlines up until David at least. And you can make the case that, you know, there's lots of theories about um, both. But we know this, is that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus because she conceived a child. She was a virgin. She was made pregnant. The Holy Spirit created this baby in her womb. And here you have this girl. They figure she could have been 13, 14 years old. And she's carrying a baby. She's not married yet. There's a scandal that comes with that. People don't just buy that story. Can I get an amen? People don't just buy that. And so we're going to see that some of the stuff that Jesus dealt with is not too much different than what you and I have dealt with. And he gets you and he gets me. And so we see that this line, it points out some people. And, and we ask, why does it matter that they keep a record of Jesus' genealogy? There's a few reasons. Number one is that if he was truly the Messiah, he had to come from the line of David. So if he didn't come from the line of David, you can throw him out. It didn't matter if he lived perfect or not. He had to fit certain criteria. Again, what are the chances that this guy named Yeshua, who's born on the day that Daniel prophesied, do the math, he comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the very day and he dies when the, you're supposed to die as far as the lamb being uh, uh, sacrificed. And, and he died in a way that fit the Passover lamb and all the things that they did to this lamb from selection to killing. Not just that, but then, okay, if all that's true, let's look at his lineage. Oops, he does come from David. And that's a requirement. So there's so many things in scripture that build the case that he is who the scriptures say he is. But not only that, but Matthew does something not seen in ancient Jewish culture. Um, in this time, you didn't include women in genealogies. It was just men. Not only that, but you wouldn't include outsiders who were non-Israelites, who were non-Jewish, non-Hebrew. And you just wouldn't do that. And so Matthew, though, knowing this lineage, he includes people that were there. Well, why is this the case? It's because in one of the purposes of the Jewish genealogy was to highlight the purity of a person's Israelite ancestry. And so you wanted to show that you had a pure line and if you could come from some of the great heroes of the faith like Joshua, you know, or Abraham, or we, you know, all of them came from Abraham, but you get down, you'd pick the best ones that had the least scandal in their life and you would claim connection to them. But some of the knuckleheads you would throw out. You've got crazy people in your family. Maybe you are the crazy person in your family. I was at one point. Hey, I'm not judging. But like when you introduce your family members to people, maybe you had a pro athlete 
or you've got a CEO, or you've got, you know, somebody that won the Nobel Peace Prize, you're going to quickly tell people, oh, this is my cousin Bob. He played for the Yankees. Uh, he went on to win the Nobel Peace Prize, and now he's the CEO of whatever. But then you got, you know, you got the other uncle, and hey, this is Jim. Uh, hey, why don't we get something to eat, you know? <laughs> we don't want to get into his past. Why? Because there's this deal where we don't want anybody putting shade or diminishing the family name or making us look bad. Or maybe it's an awkward conversation. And yet Matthew goes right to it and you don't see it unless you go back and read the stories. And so we see these names and what he's doing is he's purposely bringing in Gentiles and he's bringing in the scandals that you would normally hide. So we're going to come back to that in a moment. But I want to segue by first saying it was interesting because I randomly came. I wasn't looking for it. How many remember the, the TV show, the Phil Donahue show? Remember that? Raise your hand. Okay. Man, I haven't heard that name in a long time. And I'm like, there was this way back playback. It was an April 17th, 1993 episode. And there was an actor on there named Blair Underwood. Oh, some of you ladies are like, mmm. Mm. <laughs> you gave it away too quick. Yeah, he was a heartthrob. He was, he was on LA Law. How many had a celebrity crush? Raise your hand on Donahue. See all those hands? A lot of Donahue crushes back then. No, I'm kidding. So I could see the guy was good looking, articulate. You know, he, he, he had a lot of swag. I'm not talking about Donahue. I'm talking about Blair Underwood. This interview was interesting because, do we have the picture? <clears throat> what color was Jesus was the topic. Now, this was kind of fascinating because, and, and I'm not going to fully go down that road, although we're going to hit on it. What kind of blew my mind, and forgive my ignorance, but I could be wrong, and I researched it again last night just to fact check, but there was one other actor in Europe, and I can't remember what year it was, and I don't think it was a specific Jesus film, but I think Blair Underwood was the first actor to ever take the role of a black Jesus and this was in 1992. If he wasn't the first, forgive me, but there had to only have been one other, which is just kind of crazy to me. We've had the picture of Jesus. We've had this promotion of Jesus. We've had films about Jesus. But all the callers that called in, there was the debate of was Jesus black? And they were wrestling with the ethnicity. And so some people called and say, it doesn't really matter. He could have been green. He's our savior. I agree to a certain extent, but there's more to it. I'm going here because I want to point out what Matthew's trying to do here as well. Most of the callers and most of the people in the audience, they didn't really fight for a white Jesus. They weren't, nobody really argued for sure he was from Liverpool, England, and he grew up in Buckingham Palace, right? No one, no one argued that. No one argued that like, you know, he didn't eat baklava. He had tea and crumpets. No one said that. But there was this weird resistance. So, okay, Jesus wasn't white. We could accept that, but... There was a weird resistance to him being black. And so they, it was just fascinating to hear the arguments, right? Well, for the record, Scripture gives us his ethnicity. You can break down from all of his line. Everything. So he was olive brown of some shade. He could have been lighter brown or he could have been very dark brown. The, the bottom line, he was Hebrew and he was in the Middle East and he was a carpenter. He didn't work in an air-conditioned hotel. So he would have been darker simply because of that. The point is not like, let's prove what shade Jesus was. It was, I sat there and I listened and I'm like, 
what's at the core of this debate? What's beneath the surface? Why are people trying to create Jesus in their image or in our image? What's the point of it? Well, one point is negative. I think the, the negative side, and this, this could be for any race, and you never know unless you get into the heart and find out like what the real motive is. But one could be that we tend as people to be ethnocentric. Meaning that we want Jesus, the Lord, the Messiah, the most powerful human being, God, man to ever walk the earth. We, we would want him to be our race because if he was my color, my tribe, whether that's white, black, Hispanic, Asian, Islander, if this is in your heart, it could be, then Jesus in my color, with my hair, with my look, makes my people or my tribe or my race look maybe a little bit more beloved, a little more powerful, a little bit more favored. And maybe if he's my type, maybe that image of Jesus could wash away some of the faults in my people and in my culture and in my history. And in that regard, if we want Jesus for those reasons, then that's the type of stuff that can be used and has been used for propaganda. The Nazis used it. I don't know the exact history of why Jesus showed up as white as he has over history, but for sure that's been used. There was actually some African-American people on there that said, hey, I don't think he's white, but don't, please don't take down the image I grew up with. I don't care that he is portrayed as white. I don't want you to change it because I'm so used to this. So there was some stuff that was a little whatever. But the other thing, aside from the negative and aside from I want him to be my race so my race feels superior, there's this. And this isn't necessarily negative. I think this is human nature. I think that there was something in people that say, does God understand me? Does he get me? If Jesus is, is white and I'm black, uh, does he understand my heart my plight, my history, my family. If Jesus is, is black, and one lady said, this was kind of fascinating. She said, well, they were talking about some of the churches that were, you know, changing some of the images in their churches of the Jesus from one race to another. And one lady said, well, okay, even if he's not white though, previous caller said, well, maybe black children want the opportunity to relate to the savior according to their race. And then one lady said, well, if you take away white Jesus and then you make him black, then you have the white kids who are in the same position as black. So what do you do? It was just, it was kind of pointless in a lot of the debate. But what I was trying to listen for is what's in the heart. And I think at the heart of it, there was this cry like, God, I want connection. I want belonging. I want to be included in the family and I want you to embrace me even though I may not look like you or I hope I look like you because somehow in my humanity, maybe there's a closer connection and relatability. It might sound a little weird. Maybe that sounds off. And I do say, listen, in light of eternity, it really doesn't matter what color he was, but we live in this bilingual faith existence. And let me try and make sense of all that right here. We live in this earth as human beings and we have human emotions. And we're going to an eternity where there will be diversity, every tribe, tongue, nation, but there'll be no racism. There'll be no classism. There'll be no division in that regard. And what Jesus is trying to do is 
bring us into a place where we realize we are one family in him, though diverse, without losing or pretending that our own diversity doesn't exist. Because it needs to exist to make the plan of Christ that much, much more beautiful. That he could bring people together across lines that no one else could. And so here we have this idea like, did it matter what color, what ethnicity Jesus was when he was on earth? Yeah, it did matter because Jesus was a Jew who got treated like a Jew in the context of the first century where Rome ruled over them and they were in bondage to Rome and they were crying out for a deliverer. And when Jesus came on the scene, he, he claimed and, or later those claimed that he was the Messiah. Eventually he did. I'm the son of God. And it mattered because of the storyline of redemption. Now, does it matter? Are you more close to Jesus if he's your color? Absolutely not. But the point is the heart cries to be included and the heart cries for deeper connection with Jesus from various backgrounds. And this is what Matthew does. I want to go through and I want to point out how, how God in his love for our human emotion and our need to realize that he loved me too, that God put some beautiful yet scandalous things in the line of Jesus. So let me go through a couple. Look at the outsiders and the ugly facts that Jesus points out. Number one, we read about a woman named Tamar. Tamar was not a Jew. She was a Canaanite. For the sake of time, I won't go totally into it, but Judah was her father-in-law. Judah, Jesus comes from that line. Um, it said, you know, Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah. And Judah was supposed to honor this woman by giving his third son to this woman so she could have a kid and carry on the line. He wouldn't do it. So she tricks him. She dresses up as a shrine prostitute. She puts on the makeup and the high heels and Judah comes walking down the street. She entices him um, into a one night stand. And here's Judah, supposed to be this man of God. And uh, he ends up sleeping with his own daughter-in-law. Now this is the kind of stuff you hide. And yet Matthew says, you wanna know the lineage of Jesus? Oh, Gentiles, you wanna know if you were included or not? This could have been hidden, but let me tell you what was in the mixed race Jesus. Because her blood got into his line. And her story got into his family tree. And so she ends up pregnant. And for the sake of time, you can go back and read it. But um, she takes basically what would be the equivalent of his driver's license. And says, you know, whatever, I'll find you. And there was a you know, payment involved or whatever. And so he goes looking um, she ends up pregnant. He has no idea who it is. These people want to put her to death. And they're like, he's like, Judah's like, kill this woman. And she's like, oh, really? Bam. Where'd I get your driver's license, homie? And he was like, oh, we're going to put the rocks down real quick. Uh, we don't want this exposed. And so she ends up having a child. And that child carries on the line that Jesus comes from. So not something, again, you want to bring out. Then we get down to a woman named Rahab. Rahab was another Canaanite. She's in this line that I just read. She served in the city of Jericho as a prostitute. And when God told Joshua to go in and take Jericho, well, when they were spying out the land, they go to this woman's house and they said, listen, if you protect us 
and you hide us and shelter us from the authorities so we don't get killed being in a territory we shouldn't. We will make sure not to forget you. And when this city goes down, and it will, we'll make sure that you survive. So here's a, an outsider, a Gentile, a Canaanite prostitute. She hides them on the roof. And not only that, it was accounted under her as righteousness. For what? She lied. She said, no, they're not here. I have no idea where they're at. Which is another fascinating thing. Like, should you lie? No. But then the Bible calls her righteous because she lied to these people to hide these folks. I'm not going to try and explain that. You pray about it. Give me the answer when you're ready. Say it. So, so here's this woman and she's an outsider and her blood gets into the line and her story gets into the family tree. She eventually marries uh, a Jew, a man named Salmon from Copper River and uh, gave birth to Boaz. So here's this ex-prostitute and Salmon, and they give birth to Boaz. If you know the story, Boaz then meets this girl named Ruth, and they get married. And if you remember Ruth, she was a Moabite. Now, where did Moab come from? Moab was when uh, Lot and Abraham had to flee Sodom and Gomorrah. They head out that those cities get wiped out. Lot's daughters thought that there would be no more children that would be born because there was no one to produce the children. There wasn't a whole lot of like men in the community. And so they get dad drunk, take advantage of him. And out of that relationship, the daughters are pregnant with their own father's child. They name him Moab. Moab becomes a nation that became an enemy of God. And it was said that Moab could not be connected to Israel for 10 generations. Yet Ruth, who was a descendant of Moab, is invited to be a part of God's family because she put her trust in the God of Israel. When she said, your God shall be my God and your people shall be my people. God adopted her in from the outside. Now for a Pharisee, you don't want to hear this because it's the purity of our line it's our people, we're the chosen, we don't let our other people in. And so God throughout history from the centurion soldier who has faith greater than anything ever seen in Israel, he highlights an outsider who has faith. From the wise men that came from the east, the ones that shouldn't have known and they came and they, they worship Jesus. To the, the, the widow in Zarephath where she's not an Israelite, she's not a Jew and yet the prophet comes to her and she has faith, gives up her last meal, trusts God through the mouth of the prophet, and it's accounted under her as righteousness. This would upset the religious leaders to say that our line was tainted with outsiders and with scandals like this. But Jesus said, there's room in my family for dysfunction. Can I get an amen? Because we're in the same boat. And then we get down to Bathsheba, and interesting, Matthew doesn't even say her name. It just says, the wife or the widow of the Hittite, Uriah. Now, why didn't they just say Bathsheba? I think what he's trying to do here is he's trying to, to, to remind us that here's a, most likely a Jewish woman, marries a Hittite, and it's a reminder of the fact that the greatest king to ever sit on the throne in Israel was a man named David, and yet David in all of his glory, known as a man after God's own heart. He takes one of his mighty men 
and purposely puts him on the front lines of battle to get him killed so that he could cover up his adulterous affair. And he's putting it on front street to say, hey, look, this is the line of Jesus, but to all the Gentiles, this line is full of problems. And if you think your life and your family has a lot of problems, there's room for you. Right? Now check this out. So we have Bathsheba, we have Ruth, we have Rahab, we have Tamar. And then last, of course, is Mary. Mary, there's not a lot bad said about her other than the six months she was dealing coke. But uh, I'm kidding. Shouldn't say that. That's bad. <laughs> Dave Riesinger, bad. Go, go away. Um, okay, Pastor Dave is back. Dave Riesinger has been put in the closet. Coca-Cola. Okay. So check this out. Mary, now I'm going to... I'm not going to make her out to be. Some people think she's the co-redeemer. Scripture does not teach that. Mary was chosen by grace. Uh, we don't pray to Mary. Mary was a, it's hard to find any flaws in her. I mean, that's true. But she was chosen. But look at what the choosing did. So we'll close with this. Not only is the family line of Jesus messed up, not only are there outsiders included, which means that there was mixed blood in the, in, in the line of Jesus, but not only that, but then his immediate family and the circumstances he was raised in, God did not separate himself from the mess of humanity, the mess that we tend to live in. The tears, the heartache, the brokenness, the shattered relationships, the hope deferred, the letdowns, the addictions, the problems, right? The desperation, the confusion, the longing for redemption. Jesus Christ came as a human being and in his immediate family, what do we see? We see that God chose a woman. Oh, that's exciting. Out of all the women in Israel, I get to be chosen. But you read Mark chapter six, verse three, and she's being, there's a story that there's no way this child came from a virgin womb. In fact, the Pharisees said to Jesus, at least we weren't born of fornication, dude. You know, and if I'm Jesus at that time, I'm performing a miracle of mixed martial arts. Talk about my mom like that. So think about the scandal that he had to deal with. There's no way most of the people believe that. And then what do they think of Joseph? Oh, you poor chump, dude. What kind of man just goes with that story? Right? Like what kind of sucker are you to believe that she got pregnant by God? So they have to live with that. That had to be a cloud over that home. Not only that, but we look at, I've asked this question, kind of a trick question. You've probably heard it before. Who were the first people to ever die for Jesus? We would think maybe Stephen as a martyr. But the first people to ever die because of Jesus, it was around 200 little baby boys between the ages of maybe three months and two years old when Herod put out a decree and he said, kill all the male children two years and under in this little town. Now think about this. So Jesus comes on the scene. These would have been dudes, little boys that he went to school with, played on the Jerusalem soccer team with, right? These would have been like families down at the Y together. And because of one boy and the call on this boy's life and the identity as the God-man, because he came on the scene, Herod, filled with that antichrist spirit, did not want that king to replace him 
physically or get more glory, but behind it was Satan trying to stop the Messiah from hitting the age of maturity and fulfilling his destiny. And so 200 boys were slaughtered in this village. Now, I don't know if, I don't know if any of these families ever found out why their boy died, but if they did, imagine the heartache they, they had to carry knowing that, oh, okay, so 31 years has passed now, and this is the Jesus they were after, and I'm hearing these disciples tell the full story, and that's why my baby died, because of him. So I better believe that he is who he says he is, or that's even more tragic if he wasn't the king of kings. So think about that. I'm sure Jesus knew about this as a human and as a man. He felt the heartache and the pain of a fallen world. A couple more. Jesus was born in Nazareth. Nazareth was a no-name town. There were no Nordstroms in, in Nazareth. There were no hotels that were grand. Nazareth was just blue-collar, low-class, maybe lower-middle-class place. The Roman soldiers used to go through there. That's a place you'd pick up a prostitute. And here's this Yeshua born to a carpenter, working with his hands. And what kind of king comes into life like that? Why would you ever follow a king who swings a hammer and whose parents live in Nazareth? It just doesn't happen that way. You're born into a palace and through the line of royalty, you succeed the one before you and you take the throne and he's coming from the bottom up. We started from the bottom, now we're here, right? Some of you don't know that song, but don't go looking for it. Uh, but here's Jesus and he's rising, he's rising from the bottom and usually you, you come from the top. But check this out. Joseph, we don't know when, but along the way, he relates to us in this, that Joseph, his father, died at some point. And so here's Jesus with the siblings that are now born from Joseph. And now you've got Mary, who's a single mom. She doesn't get remarried. And for every single mom, Jesus gets you. He's mixed race. He has scandal in his background. Uh, he comes from a line of murderers, adulterers, a line that includes incest, scandal, betrayal. He's born into a scandal. He had to flee. People died because of him. Now his own dad is dead and he's got a single mom in a lower middle income house that has to carry it on. And he's the oldest, so he takes care of a lot of it. But to make matters worse, that you see in scripture, his own siblings didn't believe in him and even mocked him. So now they're like, okay, now would be a good time to go start your ministry, Jesus. Why don't you perform a miracle? It even says flat out, they did not believe in him. They grew up with him and didn't believe in him until later. It would be tough though. Imagine living with a, a sinless sibling. Mom comes in and she's like, who stole the baklava I told you not to get into, right? Jesus, I know it wasn't you, so which one of you <laughs> stole the baklava? You know, Jesus is sitting there on his Xbox playing some Christian video game. And uh, wouldn't been Call of Duty. It'd have been the call from God. I don't know. That was just off the dome. I don't know. We should invent it. I'm going to make millions. Give me a cut of the royalties. But I, I, can you imagine, like, who did it? And there's dead silence. Jesus, we just tell me who did it? It was James. 
James is like, dude, you weren't even here. How would you know? Jesus is like, I know, but I see things, right? <laughs> so you would want Jesus to fail miserably living under that pressure if you're a sibling, right? All that said, this Christmas story, it's not just, and we're going to close on this. We'll have the band come up. The Christmas story isn't about just this, this manger scene and the stars and a cuddly baby. The scene is ugly and beautiful at the same time. And for, for us that are sitting here today, I know most of you know, knew most of this, but I want to remind you that regardless of how terrible your past is, God seems to show off his glory where sin abounds, grace much more abounds, and where there's repentance and where we turn to God, it doesn't matter what color you are, your economic status, your background, your family, how bad you failed, the secret sins that have marked you and you felt so unworthy, if Jesus included it in his own family line and said, my arms are big enough for everyone and everything. He wants to remind us that his salvation is all-inclusive as long as it goes through the exclusive route of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes with me today. You might be here today and maybe you wrestle with that closeness with the Lord. First, I want to say that those who have never received Jesus Christ as Savior, if you've not put your faith in him as the way, the truth, and the light, you cannot get to heaven any other way. There's no way to salvation by trying to be good. There's no way you can have your sins forgiven by stringing together some great behavior. It's only by saying, Jesus, you're the one who paid the penalty on that cross for me. And I believe you died on the cross and you rose from the dead so I could have eternal life. And I repent. I confess I'm a sinner and I, I put my faith in you. And when we put our faith in Jesus and we receive his forgiveness, he makes us clean. He brings us into the family. And so if you're here today and maybe you've never committed to truly trust and follow Jesus or you did it one time and you feel like you've just been going astray and today you want to make a fresh commitment to follow him. If either of those are you, I just want you to slip your hand up and say, today, I want to make a decision to follow Jesus. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Appreciate that. Anyone else? Thank you, sir. Thank you for your honesty. I know it takes courage. I know it takes courage. Anyone else? Anyone else? Praise God. Praise God. Lastly, I'm going to say this. Maybe you're in here today and you long to be closer to the Lord. And you, you want that connection with him. It's like, God, I just, I just want that relationship that seems so tight, so unbroken, where the distractions don't seem to get my attention and pull me away from you. And as we close out this year, and we head into 2020, if we were about resolutions, I bet God's number one resolution for us would be resolve to know my love even deeper. Resolve to abide in me even closer. Today, you want to make a fresh commitment to abide more deeply in the one who called you close. I want you to raise your hand and say, God, today, I just want to, I want to acknowledge that and I want to pursue that. Come on, let's stand to our feet today. And 
We're gonna have you prepare your offering. I'm gonna pray real quick. And we're gonna sing this last song as you prepare your offering. And when we're done, I'll dismiss us and you can give to the ushers at the back. But let me just pray and I'm gonna have you say this after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I come to you now and I thank you that your blood washes away all my sin. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your inclusivity. And right now, I confess that I fall short. So I thank you for grace. Forgive me of everything I've done to pull away from you. And as we close 2019, and we head into the next year, draw me closer to you. In Jesus' name.